Welcome to the My Rules Are Better podcast. I am Tom Barbelay, currently speaking to you from Las Vegas, Nevada. I finally made it. Oh, what can one say? Anyway, I'm still surrounded by boxes. The shelving that I had originally planned on getting some artisan shelf maker, well, he's in Oregon of the foreseeable future. So through a process of trying to find the place that would get me the shelves the fastest, I'm still waiting on the shelves. <laughs> so... They're due to arrive about exactly the same time as the twins arrive, which is just the way these things work. But let's talk about a few different ideas, because certainly this period of time has not been spent idle in any way, shape or form. I think I'll start with Operation Sea Line, or Sim Sea Line, as I'm calling it. I have spent the past three months fighting, fighting, fighting Jason, which is a text-based format, which I'm using for the compression of everything. Uh, it's basically the format that the simulation accepts. And the format is partially based on my, what is it called? Simulated urban environment. I think that's probably the closest name that came out of it. I think it was originally called The Mushroom Boy. And it was developed in 1997 to simulate a cityscape. So I'm using that as the base format with the view that it has... Descriptions of rooms, windows, doors, plants, fences, roads, soon-to-be rivers, railway tracks, and possibly even pathways. Rivers, railway tracks, roads, yes. It's got a lot of stuff in it. But most of my time has been spent manipulating JSON, the format, and looking at optimizations for loading the JSON relatively rapidly. And the aim is to, rather than just start with a single town which was the initial plan, was to use this JSON format to render three, well, two towns in Canterbury as a means of showing just, you know, the progress that's been made, basically pushing delays into the plan and using optimizations to capture the three locales, let's just call them that, as a means of showing the technology. And I've been putting in between an hour to three hours pretty well every night into this project. It's amazing, actually, how software projects are incredibly time-consuming if you have particular parameters that you want to meet. And unfortunately, with this thing, it's just been like that. So not really much to show aside from, you know, ongoing evolution of the underlying text file format, which will plug very quickly into the graphics of the simulated urban environment. So I think once I've got the JSON exactly right, then it's just a matter of quick plugging into the urban visualization environment. And my hope is that that will have very speed advantages and just be able to render these incredibly detailed large-scale maps that much easier. So that's the update associated with SimC Line. I wish it could be more. <laughs> I wish it could be exciting and graphics and things blowing up and, you know. I have actually gone through a surveying of German marching songs of the Second World War and I think I've settled on Erica as being the theme for Sim Sea Lion. Now, <laughs> Erica's an interesting song. You know, <laughs> the Horst Vessel Lard would be ideal in some regard, aside from the fact it's banned through large chunks of Europe. So I think Erica is interesting because it's both a woman's name and also a flower. And it, 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 there's a lot of, what is it, euphemism for the <laughs> 
through the song associated with that crossover. In fact, the fellow whose who's name escapes me who composed Erica, like half, maybe three quarters, two thirds perhaps of his work is kind of all women's names, double entendre stuff, which obviously I guess worked well in the Wehrmacht back in the day. Anyway, I was trying to do a mashup between one actual German Second World War marching song or military song and Edelweiss, which is then an homage basically to the Man in the High Castle and also a kind of indication of my irritation with the Man in the High Castle. I've watched, I don't think I've even made the first season through the Man in the High Castle. I have a YouTube video that talks about how weird I'm willing to get into my World War II and I think Man in the High Castle is probably the edge of that weirdness, like maybe a step past the edge of the weirdness for me. But yeah, it's interesting, the, the what-if scenarios, and in particular, football gang violence, the, the nature of fighting styles of the kind of street, street thugs slash urchins slash folks that lived in various parts of London also get a say in the game. I think it's an interesting part of just forcing you know, additional stuff. You want you want history as much as you can in speculative history, but then you want something to make it mm, interesting, interesting, different, worthy of more attention. So yes, that's definitely going to be a, a part of the whole thing. And I have my consultants waiting <laughs> to give me that kind of information. But I also think the nature of kind of evolution of fighting styles through relatively short periods of time based on environment is pretty interesting. So you take regular... Wehrmacht or, you know, Waffen-SS, then you push them through London, say, I don't think they're the same soldiers when they get out on the other side. And I think also the many layers of the home guard and, as, as I say, the ability for, you know, factory workers kind of slash street stakes, slash kind of organised crime divisions, what have you, to also add their signature to the fighting style, I think is genuinely fascinating. So that's Sea line in a nutshell for now. I wanted to thank everyone who contacted me about the miniature company. I am, how would I put this? I guess I'm, I'm the primary financial backer and also chief observer. What I'd like to do with the early part of this thing is take all the kind of creative elements, everything that was a part of the initial creation and make that a Kickstarter reward. So basically have a reverence for the early history with the view that the relationship between Kind of the, I guess, I, I give the initial brushstrokes, right? I explain the setting, I give some background. And then the artists just take this away and make it their own. Change it ever so slightly or incredibly fundamentally. And then pass it back to me for further iterations. One of the things I did, and I'm going to, I think, continue to do, is all the early illustrations I'm writing narrative for to expand on the early illustrations. So it's not just the artist giving me feedback, these works. It's been then taking the artist's works and adding more to it and also looking at subtleties of character development. I mean, this is what really fascinates me here is that in this game, nominally everyone starts out as, you know, basically a landless peasant and has to build themselves up from this place to a wide variety of careers and whether they embrace militaria, whether they embrace agriculture, whether they embrace mysticism, you know, the ways in which the individual players create themselves through the development of the game, really. Now, it's possible for players to say, you know, I want to be in my 30s, hence here's the life experience. But what really interests me through the game as it was played historically is the notion that if you start with 
everyone at this kind of peasant class, lower peasant class. You then have an evolution through the game, through the adventures, through the, you know, the elements, the scarring, all the, all the things that go into it, which really build the character as a kind of representation of every aspect of the adventure up until that point. So the rule system that we are tackling first is the Middle Ages slash Dark Ages rule system. And what comes through that, and one of the interesting perspectives that I've taken away from recent weeks, recent months of life experience, is the notion that we have a lot of normative values now. We have a lot of values associated with trying to maximize the, not necessarily goodness, but the general productivity without, you know, deep, deep psychological guilt. I don't think these parts of our contemporary existence really map back onto the Dark Ages, Middle Ages. And my view through this is, and this is actually captured more by the artist's interaction with the work than by my interaction with the work, is the notion that everything is just really nasty. (laughs) So the kind of normative human views which are tried to be perpetuated, I guess, in some regard, contemporary society, maybe not the next generation, but certainly at least in my generation, doesn't exist here. And instead it's replaced by really a notion that on the standard D&D spectrum, you know, lawful good to chaotic evil, really most of the interactions are of a neutral evil element, a neutral chaotic element. And that whole good lawful thing, or just the notion of of lawfulness in a state which is so inherently corrupt and so inherently repressive, you might find a similar narrative currently if you thought about it a little bit. But anyway, let's move that back a step. That whole thing changes the environment, changes the interaction, changes a variety of different perspectives, and frames really the necessity of the player to move through this environment and try to find ways of surviving through this environment. So I don't know whether I said it or not, welcome to my current head, but this is the formerly Britannia rule system now being taken through this this process, this, I don't know, this almost commercializing process into this new entity. And my view is that there are really half a dozen games that I've kind of plotted out in some rudimentary form in the past two, three years, really the, the history of this podcast. And I've never really taken it any further. And this formality and the need for intellectual property creates a motivating factor, which is you know very different. I'm, I'm hoping to talk with, with Barney Dicker this Friday, but very different to the kind of posse that Barney has created. But one of the things that's really fundamental with this entity that I'm creating slash working with is the notion that we are trying to collectively embody early Games Workshop and Citadel creativity with the view that every possible image has the ability to completely blow open large chunks of the mythology, the game, fundamentally. And I think that level of creative anarchy is something that I am fully supportive of and really one of the reasons that I'm kind of financially backing this thing in a very much an alpha phase pre the initial Kickstarter. So more on that through future recordings. But I think it's a completely different perspective. I've talked about a number of games that I've kind of sketched out on two or three pages and 90-odd miniatures. So, I mean, if you look at the Chechnya game, for example, that thing could be one of these entities going forward. 
And one of the interesting parts of this is initially, at least, we're focusing or we're looking at artwork primarily. But then from that artwork, finding the missing figures, the missing characters, the missing elements, the missing villages that you don't find in Foundry or Games Workshop or all these other companies that have made... I mean, Northstar, for example, they have a, a Dark Age range, which is actually relatively spectacular. But, you know, all these companies have their Dark Age, Middle Age figures. And really what I'm looking for is exploring characters, classes, rules, ideas, which enable for a lot more possibility for unique figures to come out of that. So that's basically the remit. In addition to this, let's talk a little bit about the lead part. So my podcasting room, the new room for my space, is considerably smaller than my previous podcasting room. In fact, this house has large open spaces, but relatively small rooms. It's a somewhat unnecessary paradox. I don't know if we'd ever do major construction on this place, but just making the rooms a bit bigger and the open spaces a little bit smaller seemed to fit in quite well with my own sense of what I'd like out of this environment. So I have a relatively small closet, which is completely packed with miniatures in cases. And the room itself is supposed to be, you know, window to door shelving, uh, which has not yet turned up. I think once we get the window to door shelving, I'll be in a better position to actually understand the space. But as it is now, it's primarily filled with boxes and a small table by the window where I can do my work because obviously I'm working from home in perpetuity and also things like these podcasts. So that is pretty well defining my space. The lead pile has pretty well disappeared. I've got a couple of small Kickstarters. Most of my miniatures of an unpainted variety are with Rochi Rochford currently with the view that, I don't know, six months a year, we're not really clear on how much longer there is to do with regards to the miniatures, but they are getting painted. I will once, you know, after the twins are born, and I can say with some degree of surety that I'll be in the house, then a good portion of those miniatures that are painted will be coming back to me. But I haven't had a miniature parcel from Rochi for a good four months, and he's been working continuously through this period of time, so there's a lot of miniatures painted with him currently. But I have been very much adhering to my rules associated with not purchasing any new rules. I've done this for about two years now. And it's interesting because there are half a dozen game stores in Las Vegas that are semi-open now. I think you can certainly go in with masks at set times. And my main concern through that is I just don't want to be bombarded with new rules. Miniatures is one thing. The camaraderie of these environments as well, I think is something that I'll need to explore. But for now, not having miniatures, not having additional games, all these kind of things is, has a, a finite space element to it. And my suspicion is probably that I will need to venture into the realm of eBay and potentially sell off some of my miniatures, my painted miniatures potentially, even because of this space constraint that I find myself with currently, which probably many of you have experienced in one form or another. I had the luxury of having a relatively large room with good shelving over the walls, good-sized closets that was you know, pretty well full up. So the new normal is, uh, I don't know, changing my perspective. But it's also forcing me to think about what I actually want out of it. For the sea lion stuff, I actually have a good quantity of territorial army and a good quantity of right-era Germans to make this thing work out. So to be continued. But certainly the lead pile is less of an issue in this space 
just because I have a very finite amount of space. And also I've gotten pretty well everything that I want to have painted, painted, aside from the stuff with Rochi. So that is that update. In terms of timeframes and these kind of things, I may record another podcast or two. The doctors have told me that uh, the twins are coming later, which means probably the end of April, mid-April. We're going down to Southern California around the 20th. And the view is currently that if we have this kind of news going forward, it's probably best for us just to spend the desired or what would one say, the, the minimum amount of time in Southern California based on expense and a variety of other factors. But still, we may need to spend some time in Southern California just getting the twins ready for travel. So all this could happen in a, in a time frame that is completely and utterly beyond our control. But certainly my hope is to record a conversation with Barney Dicker on Friday and to perhaps record another podcast for the feed. I have quite a few questions for Barney. I find his, I mean, I think there are now three different podcasts that one has to listen to in order to completely decode what Barney is doing at any given time. And for that reason, I find it very, and I only subscribe to one of his podcasts. So I'm missing many parts of the contemporary Barney Dicker story. And in saying that, I'm really saying that I want the luxury to talk to the gentleman, to ask him questions, to get a sense of what's going on uh, with his stuff currently. Because I think certainly if anyone has fallen into this pattern, it has been your uh, humble narrator of just, you know, working a game, putting it down, working a game, putting it down, working a game, putting it down. And I'm using this entity thing as a forcing function to move past that behavior. And I'm interested to see what on Barney's side he's using to move past that behavior. Because, I don't know, I get the sense that there are, there are things afoot, there's constant, there's constant description of motion. But I'm interested in just talking to the man himself to get a better understanding, really to answer very basic questions that I still have associated with the new game systems he's working on. And maybe that kind of secrecy inside boys club thing is just something that Barney wants to have. So it could be actually a function of, of the design more than the experience or anyway, whatever, in terms of, you know, this is the way that it's intentionally designed to be. But I don't know. Time will tell. Time will tell. I'm interested in talking to Barney just to get an update, sense of his current thinking, and also the potential to actually jam on a variety of topics. He seems to be very interested in what he's calling tone, which I think is absolutely, I don't know, it's, it's, it can't be thought of in any way as a kind of secondary element. It needs to be there with some degree of primacy, which is why I still cling to writing a page and a half of history associated with a rule system, these kind of little limited things. But I do want to get this podcast out today. Apologies for my voice. I've left the cement dust area, but my voice is still periodically shot. So Tom Barbley in Las Vegas, Nevada, signing out.